Welcome to Colour Outside the Lines podcast. I am one of your hosts, Lisa Hughes, and I'm here with my friend... Joseph Devlin, the other host. <laughs> exactly, the co-host. Um, and, and today we have another uh, brilliant episode with a fabulous guest. We mm. are continuing in our series of how do we get ourselves through lockdown? What are the mm-hmm. kinds of things that nourish and sustain us? And so from Alex last week, fabulous mm-hmm. Alex, who is mm-hmm. from the shamanism, indigenous mm-hmm. kind of ancient wisdom, we are going mm-hmm. right up to the other end of the spectrum this week with Tara Logan Buckley. And Tara mm. Logan Buckley is a psychologist, clinical psychologist. Mm-hmm. She is a specialist. Doctor. Doctor anxiety, of psychology. Yep. Doctor, loads of pieces of paper and diplomas mm-hmm. and PhDs and super modern medicine. Yep. Um, and it was such a wonderful conversation. Mm. What did you love about it most? I really loved that the intersection, the advice that she has was so similar in nature to the advice that Alex shared with us. So yeah. I really loved that both of them mentioned this idea of getting your bare feet on the ground and connecting with the earth. I love that. People who know me will, will, will know me to be barefoot for the majority of the time when I can be. Um, and also the hugging piece, this piece around yeah. the hug and around the softening and moving us into soothe. She talks about these three different drive states or, yeah. or um, system states. So I, I, I think she had loads of wisdom that really resonated with me around those two pieces. What was the big takeaway for you, Lisa? What did you really love about it? Yeah, well, I mean, she mentioned something which I love. As you know, I will uh, uh, talk about mindfulness all the time. But she, she did. <laughs> she, she talked about it like as something really practical. So lots yes. of people think mindfulness is kind of sitting, you know, cross-legged, yeah. whereas actually she talked about this internal versus external mindfulness and this is the yeah. piece that I'm always saying it's like you can be mindful washing the dishes and mm-hmm. walking down the road and all mm-hmm. that good stuff mm-hmm. so you don't necessarily have to be a big meditator to mm-hmm. cultivate this awareness and so again we have this kind of ancient wisdom yes is now actually being validated by modern yes. science yeah. Um, yeah. 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 And, and they come back to the same place which is amazing yeah this is the thing they meet in the middle yeah yeah so without much further away yeah, because we, we got did. To be so this away. episode yeah. is a little bit longer. Yeah. A little longer. A little bit longer. We keep this really short. We keep this really Sorry. short. We'll get out of the way. Let's go talk to Tara. Brilliant. Brilliant. So welcome back to Colour Outside the Lines podcast with me, Lisa Hughes, and my very good friend. Me, Joseph Dillon. <laughs> Today, we have an amazing guest uh, with us today, a lady by the name of Tara Logan Buckley. Tara was introduced to us from uh, James Klusky, who we had a great conversation with uh, last season. But uh, James recommended us to Tara because she has done some amazing work around anxiety um, and uh keeping yourself well during lockdown and so this is really in keeping with our this theme that we have of like how how do we take good care of ourselves and this wide-ranging kind of wisdom that we're tapping into and Tara is definitely on the the scientific the modern science end of this so I I couldn't even do her justice in terms of all the amazingness because we've been having a chat here before we started and so much for us to talk about today so Tara how would you introduce yourself to our guests? 
Thank you very much. Um, I hate introducing myself, but I'll, I'll give it a go. So um, I suppose my, my professional title is a doctor of clinical psychology. So uh, for a lot of people, they're really unsure what that actually is. So basically what it means is that uh, I'm kind of a doctor of the mind and behavior. And, and that's kind of it. I, I explore mind and behavior of people. And what I try to do is, is to um, create better lives for people. And I'm really, really uh, passionate about doing that as well. So a lot of that uh, mental health and, and well-being work. Um, so I suppose a little bit of my background, uh, if people can pick it up on my accent, I'm from the lovely Dingle in County Kerry. Uh, we're still very sad, though, that Fungi's missing. He's still, still, still not found. So uh, we're very, very upset. I was only talking to people about that yesterday. Um, but that's where I'm from. And um, I studied for seven years in UCC up to my master's level. And then I moved up to Trinity, where I completed my doctorate in uh, clinical psychology. And I suppose a little bit of my background um, with work is I started out in the Irish prison service. So that's where I got my first post. And from there I moved on and I worked um, in St. Pat's here in Dublin. And on my doctor training, I was very lucky to actually do two kind of more specialized placements. So I was very lucky to do an assessment of need, but also um, obesity management, which is an area that's of massive interest to mine. It's kind of where all of my research and publications and everything to date has been on, has been around, I suppose, the impact of obesity um, on mental health and um, on our different kind of psychological dimensions as well. Um, at the moment, I currently work in the um, HSE in a primary care setting, uh, but I also do private practice. Um, so I do that for numerous different locations where I do one-to-one uh, -one therapy, group therapy and assessment as well. And I also work um, for the Veterans Evaluation Services from America. So I'm actually the lead psychologist here in Ireland for um, meeting with veterans um, and diagnosing PTSD or, for example, mental health disorders after they have um, been in combat. And um, then I also just do some stuff for some corporate clients as well, just around delivering and creating workshops and programs for them to help employees uh, manage their own mental health better. So I think that's kind of a little bit about me. I'm, I'm tired listening to you, Tara. That's a huge amount of stuff. But I, I love the thing that you were talking about, that we were talking about earlier on. It's like, it's not just about pathology, which is like, there's something wrong with you. You're really also very interested in, in, in just all of us leading better lives, right? Oh, absolutely. Um, and I think this is kind of a stigma that particularly here in Ireland um, that we've had for years around mental health is that, you know, there has to be something wrong. There has to be something diagnosable. You need to be taking medication or else why would you see a clinical psychologist? Whereas that's not the case. We do so many different things where most of my clients don't have what you want to call a pathology or a certain diagnosis. And as clinical psychologists, we tend to move away from the diagnoses. And we what we more so is we look at the symptoms. So, so what symptoms are you experiencing that's having a negative impact on your life okay and, and how do then we fix this as best as we can or how do we reduce these symptoms or for example how do we learn to live with this thing a lot of people come to me and they're like right I want you to take away my anxiety I want it gone I don't like it and I'm like well I'd love to be able to do that but unfortunately if I did we wouldn't be here very long because you, you'd, end up, you'd end up passing away. And I, I hate to say that, but, you know, if, if you were out on the road and a bus was coming, you mightn't jump back quick enough. Or, you know, if you're in a dangerous situation, you need that to be able to react that fight or flight response. So a lot of people kind of think that we can get rid of stuff that we can't. But what we do is we better learn how to manage things that cause us difficulty so that we have a better quality of life. And that's what we're about. We're all about how can we implement change in order to give you a better quality of life? And that is a 
across the board. It can be from something as someone having difficulty with a teenage child, and it can be something up as something where they're getting a diagnosis for their own child, or it can be something about themselves, or they might be living in a situation where a friend is in trouble and it's affecting them. So it's just so many different things. It doesn't have to be you get referred by a psychiatrist or a doctor. It can you can come on your own and we can explore lots of different things. So you are actually saying we need anxiety. Oh, 100%. We need every single emotion that we experience. Every emotion that we have is a communicative factor. It communicates something to us. Even those negative, horrible emotions that we don't like to feel, they're telling us that there's something going on. And anxiety being one of the biggest ones, it is telling us that, whoa, one second here, there is a threat, whether that's real or perceived, and I need to react to that threat because something something is not right. And anxiety actually keeps us safe. And that's a really important thing about it is it keeps us safe. And without it, we actually wouldn't have survived as a human race. We would not be here on this podcast today if we did not experience anxiety, that at a human level and a human race level, but also at an individual level as well. It's a, it's a useful tool in the tools, isn't it, to have this fear of stuff. Oh, absolutely. Like if you even think about maybe think back to if you play sports mm. and you've got this big, massive game coming on. How do you normally feel before you go on that track or you go out into that court? Butterflies. Absolutely. And you need it because you become more hypervigilant. You become completely focused in on the game, who your opponents are, who your own teammates are, and you're non-distracted. And that's that hypervigilance part. It's the same Mm -hmm. with, do you ever remember sitting maybe your last exam in one of those big, horrible exam halls? Mm -hmm. And you've maybe hundreds of people around you, yet all you can focus in on is those exam questions, reading them highlighting them and the time passes so quickly Mm -hmm. that fair enough you've got that horrible anxiety in the tummy and you might be all sweaty and the heart might be pumping a little bit faster but you need anxiety in those situations to keep you hyper focused Mm -hmm. and it's really really important Mm -hmm. that's that's bringing some some benefit to the body like there's a release of of um certain hormones and 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 other um uh, neurochemistry that that helps the body to uh, either perform, perform in that situation is, is that right there, there, there is some benefit to this oh yes absolutely so the main kind of one that we're looking at there that helps us perform better or helps us prepare ourselves with anxiety mm. for our threat response would be the adrenaline so mm. that's what you're feeling. So it's that mm. big, you know, when people start to get that really physical sensations of anxiety, so they're getting kind of like the sweaty palms, or the mm-hmm. heart is pumping, all that. Mm-hmm. that's just adrenaline kicking off. Mm. And all it is, is that's what actually makes us that hyper kind of arousal, hyper vigilant state is mm. the adrenaline's kicking off. Mm. So that's what's happening from a chemical kind of viewpoint in the body. Mm. Mm. So come back to this um I'm really interested in something that you said there at the start, Tara. So this is about, it's really useful. It's telling us that something is a threat, whether that's real or whether it's perceived. Mm-hmm. So there's not a huge amount of times that 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 it's going to be really valuable to me, right? So these the exams, it's very valuable. Playing sports, big game, very valuable. Stepping out in front of a bus, valuable thing to step back. What would you say to people who are finding kind of more generalized anxiety? First of all, what is it? What is this generalized anxiety? And then kind of not necessarily what's causing it, because we we know it's this kind of perceived threat, right? But 
back to this thing that you were talking about, how do we manage this more effectively now that we see it as our body is trying to keep us safe? Mm -hmm. how How do we then be able to manage it more effectively? Okay, so what I might do is bring it back to the very start to kind of give people an overview about exactly what anxiety is and what's happening within us when we feel it. Um, From my own experience, I have so many people that come into me and they may have been suffering and living with anxiety for a very long time, even some clients 10, 15 years. And when they sit in front of me, I ask them, okay, well, what is anxiety? And the most response I ever get is, well, it's fight or flight. And when I ask people to talk about that a bit more, they find it really difficult. You know, uh, we're very easy to say, oh, you suffer with anxiety or you have anxiety or you're living with it. But people don't sit down and actually explain to them, well, this is what anxiety is and this is where it comes from. So if it's okay with you, I maybe spend a few minutes just talking about that. Okay, perfect. So um, I'm going to talk about animals a lot here, actually, my favorite little friends. I love them. And why actually we're very like them um, and how actually they have this down to a T but us as humans don't really, and it'll all make sense in a few minutes. So what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna talk about the animal brain versus the human brain. So we have two parts of our brain. Um, We've got that an old part of our brain and we've got a new part of our brain. And this is what makes us different from animals. So our old part of our brain is about 200 million years old. So it's extremely, extremely, extremely old. And it's had a long time to evolve. And because of that, it means that it works to perfection. It doesn't have any glitches. It does everything that it needs to do. And it moves in and out when it needs to really, really coherently. Now, as humans, we have a new part of our brain. And this was kind of first recognized in Homo sapiens about 200,000 years ago. However, us human brain that we have right now is only about 30 to 35,000 years old. So the brain that we're living with in this modern world is only around 35,000 years old in comparison to what our old part of our brain is, which is 200 million years old. So I kind of explain this to people like our new brain is like an infant learning how to walk. What's going to keep happening to it? Fall down. It's just going to keep falling over and it's going to keep making mistakes and it's going to have to learn. So this is the thing. Our animals, friends, their brain is about 200 million years old and it works to perfection. Our brain is also 200 million years old, but the new part of it is only 35,000 years old or 30, 35. Therefore, it causes us an awful lot of problems. Mm. So. For example, let's talk about our friend, the zebra. So um, we've got a zebra out in the plains of Africa, okay? And she's got a little baby with her. And all of a sudden, the zebra sees a massive lion coming. What are those two zebras going to do? Run. Absolutely. They're going to leg it. No, absolutely. Now, they're going to run away and they're going to get out of danger from that lion. And let's say, for example, five minutes later, the lion is gone and the zebra's like, okay, the lion is gone. What will those zebras go back and do? Crazy. Absolutely. Now, a hundred percent. Now, is that zebra going to go? Oh my God! What happens if the lion comes back? What about my baby? What about the other babies? I can't stay here. This is dangerous. Do I need to ring the police? I can't live. Oh my God! My anxiety. What am I going to do? The, the zebras don't work like that. However, if you can imagine this was us, and we had even maybe a stranger come into our house by an accident, or we heard something outside our house, how would we be for the whole entirety of the rest of that day or that night? 
We'll be ringing our solicitor trying to put up a claim. Yeah, well, we <laughs> definitely. I definitely think we'd be very anxious or we'd be ruminating and we'd be extremely mm. worried and we'd be forward thinking. So what you're thinking even there is, is that that's future thinking. Well, I'll be thinking, will I ring my solicitor? Will I make a claim? Will I ring the guards? Will I do mm. all of these things? That is the exact difference between humans and animals. Mm -hmm. the, the old brain is working perfectly there for the zebra, right? So what's happening to the zebra is it sees a line and that activates its threat system and it runs away. So what it's doing is it's running away from the danger. It then stops. It looks around. It's going, okay, there's no more danger anymore. And it goes back to grazing, which is the drive system. I'm going to talk a little bit about these systems in a few minutes, a bit more. Now, what happens with us humans is our new part of our brain is fantastic. It has, we're here this morning, we're using technology, we're able to talk, we're able to plan, we're able to try out all of these scientific kind of things. But what it also allows us to do is to ruminate an awful lot. Mm. It allows us to use interrogation with other people. It allows us to future plan. It also allows us to have a really vivid imagination. So if we're thinking about that, oh, there's someone outside, don't we start to imagine all of these different hypotheses that could happen? Mm -hmm. Whereas a zebra doesn't do that. They just don't have that future thinking or that planning or that organization or that ruminating. So what happens is our brains interact, the old and the new, but we call it tricky brain. We have a tricky, tricky, tricky brain. And the thing is, this is not our fault. We did not ask to have the brains that we've had. We did not design them. Do you honestly think that if we had any involvement with designing our brains, that we would design them the way we have? I would say no, definitely not. There's definitely parts of my brain that I'd be like, hey, come back here now and take out that screw and mix up this and do that or something like that. So we've had no say in how the brain has evolved. And what happens with the tricky brain is our new brain is around scarring all of the time and it's looking at different Example, for example, like I'm looking at a screen right now, I could turn around and look at the door, I could hear noises. So my senses are going all of the time. And my new brain might go, oh, whoa, whoa, that's a threat. That, that right there is a threat. That picture on social media is a threat. Or that noise outside my window is my, a threat. Now what happens is the new brain sends a signal to the old brain saying threat. And because the old brain works to perfection, it does not know whether that threat is real or perceived, and therefore it will do the exact same thing as if there was a line standing right in front of you. It will prepare you for flight or for fight or freeze or fawn. There are other threat responses that we have. And literally, it's just our new brain picking up on something, sending the signal to our old brain and our old brain just reacting to it. And the thing is, our old brain will always react because it's a better safe than sorry principle. It wants us to survive. It keeps us alive. And if we think about how much we've evolved, even God, in the last, let's say, 20, 30 years with Internet and everything like that, we're not designed to live in the world that we're living in. We're not designed. All of us are in rooms right now. We've artificial light. We're not out in fresh air. Like if you think about it, when last did you even ground yourself in nature? So when last did you take off your shoes and put your feet firmly on the ground? This is so funny because this is what we were talking about with Alex last week. And he was saying one of the great things that you can do is take off your, your shoes and socks and put your feet in the grass or on the sand. And that's an incredibly grounding thing. 
and we don't do it. We are feet in socks, we're shoes on, the, just has the slippers on already. He was saying, you know, not even out and about, and he has the slippers on underneath. So we don't do it. You're absolutely right. A hundred percent. And we're designed to live like that. If you think about it, we're designed as a community, you know, we're designed to uh, need other people. We're designed to live in smaller groups, be out in nature, to ground ourselves, to forage for food. But we're not living like that anymore. And grounding is one of the best things we can do. It's actually funny you say that because I actually um, got a present of a grounding mat and it's on my computer desk. So every time that I'm using my computer here, I have the grounding mat and it's one of the best presents I ever got. It's absolutely fantastic. And you can also buy them for your bed. You can get a grounding sheet so that when you lie down at nighttime, you're actually channeling all of that energy as well. Are you a fan of these? I've often wondered what are they like? I I swear, since the very first day I started using it, I notice a massive difference in how I feel, how my energy is, and just how my whole actually overall well-being is mm-hmm. when I'm at my desk. You know, sometimes work can be very, very stressful. Mm-hmm. And I found that I'm able to stay a lot more calm and be able mm-hmm. to kind of um, regulate my systems a lot easier mm-hmm. by using it. And there's some amazing research on actually uh, the difference in your blood. Mm-hmm. But even when you, after 20 and 30 minutes of using mm-hmm. these grounding techniques... Wonderful. And, and just to be clear, is this one of the ones that you plug in to the, the, the socket in the wall, but it's using the earth line to, to connect to the earth? Is that correct? That is the exact one I have. Yes. I like it. OK, yeah. I like it. Yeah. And relatively not expensive. I think maybe mm. 30, 35 sterling or something like that. Mm. And the amazing thing about this one is you can use it. So I have my uh, keypad and mouse over it, but you can also then put it on the floor and put your feet on it as well. Mm-hmm. So you can use it for multiple different things. Great. Great. Okay. Excellent. Brilliant. So we're already getting into some of the tools in terms of how we manage this yeah. and we understand how the systems work. Yeah. You were talking about the systems earlier on, Terry. You said you were going to give yes. a bit of detail on that. Absolutely. So again, so this is what our animal friends have down to perfection. They have it absolutely. And I always say it like if you think about animals in the wild, you never kind of really see an overstressed animal or you never see an animal carrying extra weight or you never see an anxious zebra. there kind of looking at you and things like that. They, they just don't tend to be that way. And the reason is because they have this emotional regulation system completely in balance. Now, The way I'm going to use this is I'm going to use the compassionate focus kind of frame model for talking about this. The reason I like this is because it's just so easy to understand and it's so easy to take it away and to change your language about it. Because I believe that the way we speak to ourselves or the way that we kind of have our own self-awareness has a massive impact. So the systems are basically, um, they've always been there and it's basically what keeps us going. It keeps us alive. And we have three systems. Now, one of the systems that we've talked about in great depth already is the threat system. So that's the system that have the really negative feelings that we, we call negative, even though no emotions or feelings should be negative. They're all there for something. So this is our anxiety, our anger and our disgust. And the purpose of this is to basically detect threat and to protect us. And as I said, it works to perfection and it works on a better safe than sorry principle. So your threat system will always fire off because it's better to keep you safe, even in situations that it doesn't have to just in case there actually is a real threat there. And the kind of two big um, chemicals and hormones that we get from this is adrenaline and cortisol as well. So we know that cortisol is very much related to stress. So people who also experience stress stay within this system an awful lot of the time and they produce a lot of cortisol. The second system that we moved into is our drive system. 
And basically this system, the whole reason for this, it's kind of, it motivates us towards resources. So for example, um, when we get up in the morning and we go to the toilet or we brush our teeth or we go for our shower, we go down, we eat our breakfast. If it's cold, we turn on the heat and we put on some extra clothing. If it's raining out, we make sure that we might bring an umbrella. We make sure we eat throughout the day. We make sure as a species that we might find a partner, we might reproduce, those sort of things. So the feelings that come with this are wanting, pursuing, achieving, progressing, and very, very focused. Now, the thing with the drive system is, if we think about this in animals, it's very much to do those basic things that keep them alive. Sleep, eat, toilet, reproduce. It's become quite problematic in humans because a lot of people think they're in the drive system when they're not. They're actually more so in the, in the threat. And we can talk about that in, in a minute. A lot of people at work will know I'm completely in drive, whereas actually they're not. They're more so in threat. It's also the system where addiction falls because the main kind of um, chemical we get in this is dopamine. So anyone who has addiction issues would predominantly be within the drive system. Now, the thing is, if we stay in the drive system for prolonged periods of time, it leads to burnout because we just can't keep functioning in a matter. The same with the threat system. If we stay within the threat system, it can be really problematic for us. It can lead to burnout. It can lead to obviously mental exhaustion. It can lead uh, actually it can actually lead to death if we stay in it for too long. So, you know, I don't know if you know, there's an awful lot of research around um, heart kind of cardiovascular disease, stress management and everything like that. So the threat system, if we spend too long in it, we can actually die from it. And I am talking about prolonged periods over years. The last system that we have is our lovely system called the soothing system. And the purpose of this is to manage distress and to promote bonding. So these are the feelings of being contented, feeling safe, protected, cared for and trusted. And the lovely kind of chemicals that go with this are opiates and oxytocin. So, you know, when a baby is born and it's crying, that all that it wants to do is to be picked up and held by its caregiver. And the second you pick up that baby and hold it, it basically stops crying because it feels soothed and connected. And there's beautiful neuroimaging studies done on actually the part of the brain that, that is in controlling of the um, soothing system, which is the free, uh, prefrontal cortex, lights up in baby and in mommy at the same time. So it's a really beautiful feeling. Now, is, is, this why, is this why I like hugging so much? Oh, 100%. And one of the biggest things is do not hug someone unless you're going to do it for at least 10 seconds, right? So for everybody, if you're going to hug someone, make sure it's 10 seconds. And the reason for this is because it releases oxytocin. I am laughing. Joseph is the best hugger ever. And it's like he has you in this grip and you're like, okay, nice to see you. But it's just your oxytocin requirements, obviously, Joseph. Yeah. And I didn't even realize it. This is what I'm going to start. This is what I'm going to start saying when we're allowed to hug people again. It's okay. It's okay. This is pure oxytocin. It's good for you. It is. It is. I know it might seem really, really odd or strange, but I now don't hug anyone unless it's 10 seconds. And I will make sure, I will keep them there like in a bear grip and be like, no, you're not going, you're getting your oxytocin, you're getting your oxytocin. And actually, it's a great thing to start doing with children. It's a great thing for children to start teaching them. Actually, no, yeah, you can give mommy or daddy or uncle or whoever a hug, but you got to do it for 10 seconds, almost like it's a game. Because then what that will teach them is that's activating their soothing system for them. It's also activating it for you and it's releasing oxytocin and it's giving them a really good skill for life as well to be able to open up this soothing system. So, so the brief hug, the kind of like the, 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 the kind of touch and go, if you like, that, that's not really giving you 
the kind of full juice of the hugging experience. Would that be correct? Yes, that is correct. Yeah. Now, I know some people feel really awkward when they give hugs. Um, I know I did for years. Uh, we weren't the most hugging family when I was a child. Mm -hmm. So my mom just didn't really give hugs. That was kind of just her own upbringing as well, you know. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. So I had to train myself to give these hugs. And it was a little bit uncomfortable at the start. But now, oh, my God, I'm like a teddy bear. I literally just want to hug all of the time. And it has to be for 10 seconds. And it just feels amazing. And I think... Um, when we do this, we're rebalancing our system. So one of the really important things is that our, the systems can only be regulated by accessing that soothing system. So the soothing system actually gives power to re-regulate the drive and the threat system. So how we get our systems back in balance is by accessing the soothing system more and more. However, what happens to us is as children, we start to learn mechanisms of not necessarily soothing ourselves or our caregivers might stop soothing ourselves. So a lovely example I always talk about is, you know, when you're young and you fall over and someone kisses your knee and they give you hugs and you're OK. And remember that time then when you're just a little bit older and you fall and they're like, oh, mind yourself, you're grand or, you know, big girls don't cry or big boys don't cry. And it's only a scrape. You'll be grand and get your own plaster. So that part there, we're then trying to go, oh, well, one second, well, I'm used to you soothing me and accessing that soothing system for me. Now I have to do that alone. And not a lot of children are thought the skills to activate their own soothing systems. So what actually happens in neuroimaging is that what we see is this part of the brain that actually is involved in the soothing system starts to become smaller and smaller in certain human and adults, particularly those who aren't compassionate to self or those who are very critical of oneself or who have high shame and guilt or who would experience a lot of anxiety or stress. Their soothing system is really, really small, but it also means that their drive, their drive systems then are a lot larger. And what happens is the tree systems become entirely out of balance. So we find it very hard then to move freely in between the systems and we can only then re-regulate them by accessing that soothing system. That's why animals have this down to perfection. Your cat wakes up in the morning, she looks at you. You let her out, she goes to the toilet, she's fed, she comes in, you rub her belly, off she goes to sleep, she's feeling connected. And she does this pattern if she hears a noise or sees a bird, the threat system, but she moves in and out of these three systems perfectly all day, every day, without of them being out of balance. We unfortunately don't do that. Our systems, particularly in modern day society, are entirely, entirely out of balance. So you talked about hugging. One of the big things that Joseph gets really upset about is, is in COVID, we can't hug each other. And so we almost have this kind of like touch deprivation, given that the way that the, some of the ways that we access these systems are now not available to us. Tara, what else can we do to, to kind of re-regulate ourselves through this, this soothing contentment? There is lots of stuff we can do to access our soothing system, a lot. For example, you know, the grounding kind of stuff that we were just talking about? That is one of the big things that we can use. Very, very simplistic. We can just ground ourselves um, by putting our feet on the floor or out in nature with no socks, no shoes. Um, we can lie on the floor. So when last did you lie completely on the floor? We, we don't do that anymore, sure we don't. That is an amazing way to be able to access that as well and to engage in the soothing system. Um, one of the biggest ways, and I know a lot of people are like, oh, not this word again, but mindfulness. Mindfulness is one of, and I see them laughing already. 
<laughs> so the funny thing is, is I teach mindfulness and we're both yoga teachers. So like we're, you're preaching to the choir here. We're like lying down all the way down. I was on my mat this morning, you know, so this is, it is, it, it's like, you know, you're not only you're preaching the choir, we, we've been talking. So what it's so wonderful for us is to say, oh, there's science behind this. Well, I, like I've been doing yoga for about 10 years and, and only because I knew it felt good in my body. I started mm-hmm. practicing mindfulness because it worked, not because I kind of knew what the stuff was behind it. So it's, mm-hmm. it's wonderful to hear that there is there is scientific reasons for Oh, 100%. Mindfulness mindfulness is honestly one of the best things that anybody can do. I I remember when I started my mindfulness training, um, for the first six weeks, I was like, what is this? What am I doing? Oh my, I'm just not getting anything from this. This is just, I, I don't see the purpose. This is so, so difficult. And I'll never forget it. I was driving up the road to the place that I worked and it was a beautiful old Georgian manor house. And the road up to it was just spectacular. And I started working there just before um, I had started my mindfulness training. And all of a sudden, one day, about six weeks in, I started to notice all the squirrels. And I was like, whoa, what? What, what, what's going on? Like where? And I went into work and I said, you know, where have all these squirrels come out of? And they said, squirrels are always there. I was just so preoccupied and my mind had been so full. And I always use this joke, you know, you have a choice. You can either be mindful or have your mind full that I wasn't recognizing this. And that's when I started to notice, wow, okay, I'm starting to be a lot more in the present here. And now I couldn't go a day without practicing mindfulness. Now, what another thing I say to people is a lot of people think that they have to sit there and do these kind of chants or they have to go into this meditation stance or no, no, no. There is two types of mindfulness I always talk about. You've got that internal mindfulness where you can choose to sit down and look in words and do all of those lovely like leaves on a stream techniques or kinding loving meditations. But you've also got this external mindfulness I talk about where you can brush your teeth mindfully. You can eat your lunch mindfully. You can go for a mindful walk. You can go outside and do one of my favorite grounding techniques, which is I don't know if you've heard this five, four, three, two, one. Uh, I've got we got one. You have yeah. Joseph. You've got a no there. You haven't heard this, have you? I haven't heard this. Can can you can you give us a little insight for our listeners? Absolutely. This is one of the most simplest techniques that you can use. Okay, and you can do this anywhere. So even if you do it right now. So what I say is the very first thing is, and we use all of our five senses here. Is so look around and name to yourself five things that you can see. Now, four things that you can touch. Now, I want you to listen really carefully and three things that you can hear. Two things that you can smell. And then one thing that you can taste. Wonderful. This is so. Great. 
It's so simplistic. You can do it anywhere. It's a lovely one to do out in nature. It's also a really good one if you just want to ground yourself. And what I always say to people is, you know, when you maybe get that work email in or you get that text message and you're like, I can start to feel maybe some anger or frustration. What I always say to people is, look, you're in the threat system. Go and do a little bit of a grounding technique, something as simplistic in that to try to move you out of that threat-based system and into that soothing place. And it's just something as simplistic as that can just change what system we're in as well. Wonderful. Like I always say to people, you don't need the smells and the bells. <laughs> you know, because yeah. that's what they think. Smells and bells, you know, incense or candle or whatever it is. And and like five, four, three, two, one is such a great technique. And, and yeah. the other one that I use is kind of, uh, I call it head, shoulders, knees and toes. So it's like... Seat, seat, hands. Can you feel your the weight of your of your body on the seat? Can you feel your feet on the ground? Can you feel into your hands? So, and that switches us into into that that system. That's a brilliant practical. Yeah, it, it's so good. And as you said about even the one on your seat and, you know, describing your environment in detail can be a really no, another good one to pull you out of that. Or a lot of people, um, I get people to use uh, grounding objects. So something for them. So usually people like to pick stones from the sea or shells or something like that, that basically when they can pick it up, it can just ground them back into that kind of a place. Um, so it's really, really good. Grounding ones are amazing techniques to be able to use and so simplistic as well. What are the other things, sorry, that we can do to, to get ourselves into this soothing contentment? So we've got we've got mindfulness, we've got the, the grounding mat that you've talked about. Um, what are the, some of the other things that you that you've that some of your patients find people, humans they are dealt with humans, find yeah. useful? Yeah. Yeah. So that's what I say as well is, you know, this is a really shared human experience, particularly at the moment with COVID. You know, um, I think people forget about the impact that this is having on us. Like, you know, um, something as simplistic as like if we even think about how our hypervigilant we have become with like, you know, I can now not turn on any of my computers or my laptops or anything at all, any sort of a media thing without seeing news warnings, negative media, infection rates, daily numbers. The way that we're living, increased wearing of masks, hand sanitizing, health consciousness, working from home, isolation, paranoia, limited contact, no outlets, more screen time, changes in eating habits. That has a massive impact on how we feel, loss of income, more alcohol consumption for a lot of people. And like people just are forgetting that all of this is also going on while you're still trying to live your normal day life. So what I really try to do is really normalize that at the moment, we are all having the same experience and it's a shared human experience. So just because someone is struggling or finding it difficult, it, it doesn't make them any different. We are all experiencing this and how we react to it is, is different for everybody, obviously. Can I come back to something that you said just a little bit earlier on? Because I'm interested in this, that this, that the drive and the threat. And you were saying that people get confused and, and think they're in the drive system and they're just like, they really love their work. But actually, you were saying that they're in their threat system. I'm yes. really interested in that bit. Yeah, of course. This is a really, really interesting one. So I might ask you for your own input. Have you ever had a day, right, where you're just very, very productive? You sit down at the computer, you're able to write what you want to write. There's kind of no frustration. It comes freely. And at the end of it, you're like, yeah, that, that's really productive. Really good day. Yeah. Yeah. OK. Ever have a day where you go down to write something and there's nothing coming out? Oh yeah, yeah. Oh, we got. Tell me, how did you start to feel? 
Oh, frustrated, I guess. Mm-hmm. Okay, you start to get Okay, great. That, that's what I was looking for was the self-critic, right? That's really good because this is exactly what happens. Failure triggers threat via our self-critic. Okay, so what happens is we're sitting down, we're not able to write it. We're starting to think, oh, what's wrong with me? I'm frustrated. I'm getting angry. My critic got, why can't I do this? Am I just not good enough, et cetera, et cetera. Now, because we're still sitting in front of that computer and work, don't we still think we're in drive? We, we still think we're in there. We still think we're in that system because we're trying to do work. It's to do with getting money, resources, things like that. We're actually... No, we're not. We've moved into the threat system. The second we start to experience anger or self-criticism or self-attacking or self-defeating, that is the threat system. So what happens is we tend to go ping pong between the drive and the threat all of those times and those days. And most people are stuck in that and able to get out of it because when we fail, we attack ourselves. We put ourselves into the threat system. Then we try again because we're feeling bad about failing. We then move into the drive system. But yet again, we can't do it because we've just come out of that threat based system. We still have all of these emotions and the self-critic and boom, we're ping pong back in and out between the whole lot of them. So what happens there is it's the self-critic that really keeps this ping pong going between the drive and the threat. And the whole thing around the soothing system is to try to banish our self-critic as much as possible, because a lot of people think, oh, but Tara, I need my critic. My critic is good for me. And I'm like, no, it's not. Your critic isn't. Anything that self-defeats you, anything that self-attacking actually isn't positive for you. They go, oh, but, you know, it kicks me up the bum and it gets me out to do my exercise and things like that. I'm like, no, that's coming from a place of shame and guilt and criticism which actually is all your threat system. That is not, not good for you. We need to get that from a soothing place where you're doing that from a really constructive way. Because just because if we get rid of the self-critic, it doesn't mean that we let ourselves off the hook what people think about. It doesn't mean that we become these selfish people or that we love ourselves entirely or we're these vain creatures. That's not what compassion is. And that's not what the soothing system is about. It's about us approaching things differently from a compassionate viewpoint and one where we care about ourselves. So for example, that day, if I was having that in work, instead of calling myself a failure, I would say, look, Tara, look, you're in your drive. You're, you're trying to be in your drive system. It's not working. You're in threat. You're noticing your critic is coming up. This isn't really helpful for you. So let's get up. Let's go and make a mindful cup of tea. Let's do a little bit of grounding and let's come back and let's not talk to ourselves like that because that's not doing you any good. Instead of sitting there and attacking and criticizing because it's just going to keep the ping pong going. So you're telling us that this no pain, no gain, work really hard, hustle for all your worth. You've got to prove, you know, you're better than anybody else. Work that that's not good. Absolutely not. That just keeps us going between the threat and the drive. It might get you your materialistic things. okay? and this is what I say to people. We we live in a world where we're absolutely obsessed with instant gratification. We're obsessed with having nice things. We're obsessed with spending money and, and owning all of these massive things. But if these things are keeping you within that ping pong of threat and drive, What kind of life are you actually living? What are you doing internally to your body? If all you're pumping through is cortisol and adrenaline, if you're not actually truly present with your friends, if you go out for a meal and all you're thinking about is work and you're not there, you're not fully listening, you're not active, or you're spending all of your time away from your children and not really present with them, what kind of a life is that? When we pull back all of those type of things, 
And it's really interesting because when we look at the male brain, um, when the man gets into his 20s, 30s, 40s, particularly when he's got kids, he becomes the provider. It's this natural instinct that's in him. I need to provide. Mother becomes nurturer. And it's funny because when a man gets into his 50s, around 55, testosterone drops off dramatically. And all of that goes away. And he's like, whoa, he becomes a lot more empathetic, more sympathetic, really values time with children. So I don't know if you've noticed that may, males typically are a lot more loving and caring to their grandchildren than sometimes what they are to their own kids. And that's why, because this whole nurture thing gets shut off because the testosterone drops and the chemicals and the brain changes. So it's kind of like that as well. If we live our lives always like that, we're, we're missing out on all of those beautiful things. This, this ping pong game analogy between um, drive and threat it, it is a really interesting analogy for me. And, and I'm wondering, is, is this becoming like more the normal of, of kind of modern day life? And, oh. and the, the, the question I have for you a little bit, and this is coming up really fresh in my mind, because over the weekend I watched that movie Wolf of Wall Street again. I don't know if you guys have seen this. But yes, certainly have based on this true story of this kind of stock um, broker who who um, goes on a mad, mad, mad story. But but basically it, it kind of seems to be in this kind of threat drive thing where where he comes from a background of um, of, of, of not having money. He comes from a background of, of not having resources. And then that drives him to some pretty extreme behavior in, in, in the, in, in search of a lot of resources, but he, his relationships in his life and, and end up, you know, being really affected. And I'm wondering if, if this is something you see where, where that propensity and, and interesting, you mentioned men, cause I, I, I do think it's really prevalent in men to, to be knocking back and forth between these two systems, kind of thinking that you're doing what you should be doing. You should, you're providing and you're bringing home the bacon, um, but we're, we're not able to enjoy being in Soothe or we're not able to relax into being into this. Is, is, is that what I'm picking up? Yeah, definitely. Um, one of the biggest reasons that, particularly in modern day society, that we're going between these so much is the, the environment that we're in. OK, look, look at how we're programmed. Nine to five jobs. Where where does it state anywhere in history and evolution that we should have nine to five jobs? These are a relatively new thing. OK, so we've got these nine to five jobs in all of these places that we shouldn't have them. Um, we're expected to live a certain way. We're expected to buy a house. We're expected to have a car. We're expected to live a certain quality of life. And all of this has been put on to us, particularly in modern day society and, and the likes of the Internet and everything like that. Now, if, remember what I said was that one of the main chemical components of the drive system was dopamine. So we get addicted to that very, very, very easily. And what happens is when we go into drive threat more and more, obviously there's more dopamine. This obviously then people want to stay in that. So for example, some people might use um, other coping mechanisms to help with that, particularly maladaptive ones. So if we think about cocaine would be a drug that's used quite a lot within certain um, professions. And if you think about it, that's getting the dopamine, 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 dopamine hit as well. So for those people in particular, it's just drive nonstop, drive, threat, drive, threat, drive, threat. And a lot of people actually forget what it's like to soothe or they don't know how or they find it actually quite uncomfortable because they've never been thought those type of things. We're living in a society that is dramatically promoting drive and threat. 
all of the time. The threat is kind of like the byproduct. They don't realize that by asking people to do what they're asking them, that that threat is going to come from it. So if you even look at maybe how some of the bigger organizations typically around the American model works is that, you know, it's not really a set time that you work. You're kind of expected to be an earlier or later. Everything is on the button. So it's not like you can kind of like, you know, Ireland, we might saunter into meeting like we all we'll have a cup of tea. We'll have a quick chat. Everything there is bang on time, finishes a time. You cannot be a minute over. There is no room for any mistakes. And you're all of the time being um, what's that word I'm looking for? I'm, I'm, I'm going to say criticized in a sense because you are being regulated. You're being watched. There's managers. You have like performance reviews like every six to 12 weeks in certain companies. We're just not designed as human beings to live like that. At all. We're just, we just aren't. And this is why we're seeing a massive influx in stress, anxiety, mental health difficulties across all ages, across all of the lifespans, particularly in around those adolescent years as well, because they just don't have the, the, the prefrontal cortex isn't developed enough for them um, in order to be able to deal with all of these type of things. So in order, the drive's not going away, right? If I'm in, in a job and I'm working in this American company and I've got, you know, 360 reviews every quarter, I get that. What I'm hearing you say, though, is, is, is I can balance that out with my soothing system. And if I can learn to access some of the soothing and teach myself some of these skills, then even though the drive won't go away because that's coming from somewhere else, I can't you know, I've got to pay the mortgage and all that stuff. But if I can access this soothing system, that's the thing that's going to balance me back out and bring my my um, my whole system, my holistic system back into some sort of homeostasis. Absolutely. We cannot get rid of any of these systems. They are programmed into us just like they're animals. And we need all three of them because we need them to function. We need them to survive. So they're not going away. The thing is, we can actually we actually move in and out of these systems hundreds of times per day without even realizing it. So um, I have a tendency in the morning. So the very first thing I do when I wake up is I put on my happy playlist. That's my very first thing when I wake up. It's the very first thing I do. Boom. That is my happy playlist. So you're you're going to actually probably be really shocked when I say this, um, but my uh, favorite music is trance. Oh, cool. Yeah. Joseph and like, are definitely, you know, <laughs> brothers wanna, and sisters. I want to swap notes with you later on, Tara. I'm, I'm very interested in your playlist. We play yeah. this exchange here, Tara. We've oh, been de- Definitely. I actually play the decks as well a bit. So um, I have decks in my house. <laughs> Amazing. You're going to have to bring her down to Wexford and we'll have a whole, you know, trans dance thing going on. Uh, it's one of, it's one of Joseph's favourite things to do. So it's, that's a whole other podcast. Yeah, yeah, That's no, definitely. Yeah, so for me, trance is probably the, the, one of the quick. The, so the two quickest ways I have access of my soothing system is trance music and looking at animals of, of videos of animals, like really cute animal videos. I have one in the twenty second clip. It's only twenty seconds, and it literally just brings me straight into my soothing system. So what I do in the morning is the very first thing that happens is I put on my system, put on that, and I go straight into my soothing system. And the second thing I do is I go and brush my teeth, but I brush my teeth mindfully. 
So again, I'm accessing the soothing system. I also have adapted eating mindfully. I've been doing this for a very, very long time and I'll eat my breakfast in a mindful manner as well. So before I even maybe have left the house that morning, I could have engaged in 20 minutes of a mindfulness activity without even realizing it. You know, some people go, I don't have time for mindfulness. I can't bring it in. It's too, but straight away, I have just done my normal day with my, with my soothing system. So then I might leave and I might go on the M50 and I might be not so lucky and I might meet a driver who starts to cut out and starts beeping at me and everything like that. And unfortunately, our threat system gets activated because we're like, oh, is there danger? And he's and then, then it's more, well, how dare he does that? And he's beeping at me and blah, blah. So that's my threat system activated. And I'm going, oh, and then I try to get out of it. I might try to put back on some music or listen to a podcast, to try to clear my mind. I then will come into work and I might be working away in my drive system, replying to emails. All of a sudden, my boss might send me an email going, Tara, I'm not really happy about this or you need to make a change on that. And boom, there goes my threat system. Then I'm like, OK, off I go, make a cup of tea, do a grounding piece and move back into my soothing. So what we can learn to do is we can learn the very first thing is to actually be aware of what system we're in. When are we moving into it and how do I move out of it? And we move in and out of these systems so much per day. And that's why I love using the terminology of threat, drive and soothe, because it's a lovely way to think about how we are each day instead of being critical or anxious or sad or, oh, I'm, I'm under pressure or this. It's just a lovely terminology. And what I say to people is if you just Google, um, the, if you Google the three systems, CFT online, you, you'll get a lovely um, picture of the three systems. Um, and this is kind of what they look like. I can show you there, but it's just the oh, three so this systems. Is Paul Gilbert's work. Paul this Gilbert. Yeah. Lovely. Yeah. So what the three systems, you can print it out. So I get people to print out a tiny little one, almost like a water card and stick it at your computer. And look at it and a few times a day, ask yourself, well, what system am I in right now? And how do I know I'm in that system? And you'd be so surprised if you start to do that a few times per day, this will become habitual and you will start to do it all of the time. And then you will start to recognize, well, OK, you know, I'm moving into my threat system. I don't like this. Why am I moving in there? What can I do to move out of it? Is this kind of like when you're driving a car, you got different gears? And you need to use different gears in different situations. Yes, that's exactly like it is. That you st- And the thing is, when there, there's no point trying to use certain skills if you've gone too far, if that makes sense. If you're completely in the height of threat, you're going to just have to let the emotion pass and let it process and sit. But if we can start to recognize when we're moving into threat and we can start to feel those changes within our body or our thoughts or our senses, we can then shift the gear and go, okay, you know what? I'm not, I'm not going in here. I don't like this. I'm going to do something to move myself out. So normally what we have to do is if we feel ourselves moving into threat, I always say do something distracting drive wise. And then after we do that distracting thing, what we do is we try to do something soothing because it's impossible to go from threat to soothe. That's just too much of a gap. So what we like to do is threat, drive, soothe. So you're saying is is really it's about the awareness, right? So the awareness of like when am I getting to the edge? When am I coming up to my threat system? And that's not in your brain, right? That's in your body. That's completely in your body. The thing is, 
we can do it a few different ways. So the easiest way to start feeling emotions sometimes for certain people is the physical physical feelings it brings up for us. For other people, it's the thought process. Um, but it can be very difficult to capture thoughts. So what I normally start with people is start to bring awareness to the body, start to feel the body. What do each of these systems feel like when you're in them? And then when people have kind of mastered the awareness of the body and the physical sensations, we then try to move into, well, can we capture the thoughts that might cause that? Or can we capture capture kind of what's going on because we've loads of different ways of moving and feeling emotions because our senses our ruminations old memories thinking about the future thinking about the past there's so many different ways that we can basically um bring about an emotion for us so it's about to start really honing in with what does that feel like for us okay and then it's going back to well, what triggered that what was the very first thing that caused that to come up and it, it just takes a little bit longer to get to the trigger and it's it this is one of the challenges like we're so disconnected from our bodies mm-hmm. you know, we find it so hard to kind of even figure out what's going on and where is it in our bodies and you know and like we could be talking here for hours and hours on end one of the things that I did want to to get to because I think this is really interesting we're definitely going to have you back because this is just like I don't know about anybody else but I'm nothing this up um <laughs> You have done a huge amount, you you said at the start, you've done a huge amount of research and your PhD was all around overeating and obesity and the effect that that has on our mental health. And I just know for myself and for for lots of other people, you're lucky enough that you're not working from home. I'm at home, I'm snacking all the time. I'm trying to be really good. And there is my my self-criticism, my voice in my head is going off and like the good foods and bad foods. Tell us a little bit about overeating and the impact of that on our mental health, just kind of given the situation that we're in. Yeah, of course. So um, oh, I could talk about this for about 20 hours. Um, so um, a lot of people don't um, really have the awareness that what we directly put into our bodies um, in terms of anything that's uh, substances, including food, alcohol, tobacco, anything like that, dramatically impacts how we feel. So um, a lot of the foods that we eat in modern day society are processed. And what they do to the body is they cause a massive amount of inflammation in the body. And when this happens, our hormone of cortisol is produced, which puts us into stress. And it also means that parts of our bodies don't function well. What happens is when this occurs, it also does the exact same thing to the mind. And what we can see is huge, huge areas um, of difficulty. So some of the biggest things that we see is it has a dramatic impact on mood. So what we tend to see is there's a huge correlation between processed foods, unhealthy eating and depression. That's one of the biggest things. Can I just ask, Tara, and this may sound really basic, but give me an example of what processed foods might be. Okay, um, right. One of the easiest ones that we might give to kids all of the time, you know, the packet of luncheons that you can buy in the supermarket. Oh, yeah. Yep. Processed foods. Um, Eating crisps are processed. No. Um, anything, anything that kind of comes, in a, anything that comes in a packet. They're just potatoes chopped up and fried. Yeah, mm, yeah no, I wish it was. Not you one of your daily five, mate. I heard. And this is why I asked the question: Is it's like kind of because like processed food? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But like crisps are just potatoes chipped. No, anything no. that comes from a packet, like easy singles cheese. Easy no, singles cheese. cheese. Oh, Sausage. no. no. Sausages. 
pudding. They're all processed, certain meats. Basically, I heard Mark Hyman, he's he's um, a psychiatrist. I heard him say it. Anything that basically comes in a package with a list of ingredients is processed. And I thought it was the most easiest explanation ever. And I was like, wow, that absolutely makes sense. Because if you think about it, natural raw foods that are good for us don't come with a list of ingredients. So if we think about salmon, which is avocados, nuts, those those things that, you know, we're we're meant to live on a, on a diet of high protein and fat because that's basically what we came from. That's how we evolved. That's how we became intelligent. It's how the new brain evolved was from basically starting to eat higher fat foods and also foods that were full of um, good fats and proteins. That That's how we are. And we're actually meant to start our day off, our, our morning food is actually meant to be high protein and high fat and a lot of people are like what no way I have my cornflakes I'm like oh no 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 we need that to boost our brain in the morning and what we're doing is we're living in a world where literally it's called the obesogenic environment I'm not too sure if you've heard of this before where literally everything around us even though we think we're living in a fitness world and we're living around promoting good eating we're not every single thing is to promote us overeating absolutely everything it's where they make so much money the dieting culture the industry every time you walk into supermarket i don't know if you know this it has been designed by behavioral psychologists in order for you to spend more money on processed foods so wasn't it mark hyman who said you don't go into the inside aisles of a supermarket you just stay around the edges because that's where the vegetables that's how it's designed is all the like good stuff around the edges and they draw you in around the edges so don't go into the middle bit into the, the, middle bl- the black hole of sugar in the <laughs> middle like they'll, it'll slowly exactly. you in yeah. and suck you in yeah completely if you think about any supermarket the second you walk in the very first thing it's all fruit and vegetables, the very, very first thing. But in order for you to get what we would consider maybe one of our, our, our normal things every day, milk or butter, for example, that's usually a very staple in every single household. You need to walk to the very, very back of the shop. And there is reasons for that. All of these like, you know, uh, buy one, get one half price, buy one, get one free. And if you look at it, all of the foods that are full of sugar um, are at kids' eye levels. That's so sneaky. Yes. Yeah. All at kids' eye levels. If you want to see a child having a tantrum, the best place to go is a supermarket. (laughs) I can testify to this. Three children later. Normally in the cereal aisle, when I'm trying to give them the Weetos and they're looking for the Cocoa Pops. Yes. Absolutely. And yours will be up higher, even actually probably more so. You won't even be able to see it at your height level, but they will all be down at the kids' kids' eye levels. And this is because tech, realistically, more mothers go shopping because they have their children at home. And this is the reason why that they have to bring their kids with them shopping. That's why I always recommend any parents, if you possibly can, do your shopping in the evening where one parent can go alone and save yourself a lot of a lot of heartache with, with that as well. And something along the same lines as this, I've learned through my years of trial and error is if I go shopping when I'm hungry compared to when I'm satiated, I will walk out with a trolley load at the end that's completely different mm-hmm. one way or the other. Like if I'm hungry and um, 
you're thirsty, like I used to go to the gym and then go straight to the supermarket after my workout. I'd basically just leave with like chocolate and protein bars and tuna and yogurt. Sausages. Probably sausages. Well, no, they, they, they would take too long to prepare to get into my mouth. Like that, that that's one yeah. step too far. Like if I can't put it on the driver's seat and then eat it, then and, it's not processed enough. <laughs> and do you want to know why that happens? Yes. Yes. Okay. So we have evolved to have a see food, eat food brain. Okay, just like our animal ancestors. If you put food down in front of a dog, he will keep eating it until he physically makes himself sick. We have the same thing. And the reason for this is because we were hunter gatherers. We didn't have access to the surplus of food that we have now. You know, if we think about it, it's just since the industrial revolution that we have been able to have access to all of these foods in these process. So therefore, we never knew when we were going to get our next meal. Therefore, when we see food, we eat it. We're programmed like that. That's evolution. That's hardwired in us for millions of millions of years. Now, there's another second part of that. We are designed evolutionary to have a sweet tooth. And the reason for this is when we were foraging, um, when we picked up fruit and we bit into it, if it tasted sweet, it meant that it was ripe and it was full of really good calories and it tasted good. And we love that. If it was sour, we would spit it out because it would give us the sensation of disgust. And actually it meant it could harm us because if it wasn't good enough to eat, that's where disgust came from that, that whole initiation kind of thing of where we get disgust. So what happens is when we are, when we are hungry or when we are tired or anything like that, our body automatically is looking for a quick fix. It's looking for something quite high in sugar and quick, quite complex, like a very simplistic kind of carbohydrates that we can break down really, really fast. Couple that with seafood, eat it. And with sweet tooth, it's a recipe for disaster. We will just go in and we will pick up all of those things that we mind ever, ever do. And the thing about it is it doesn't satisfy us. It doesn't, we're not listening to what our body actually really needs. So like in that situation, the best thing you could give your body would be a banana. That would be the best thing. It's good in, it's good sugars. It's good for us. It's giving us the kind of carbohydrates. It's slow releasing. It's going to give us energy over a long time, but we never go for that banana. We go for the chocolate or the crisp for the quick thing that we put into our mouth. Guys, we have been talking for over an hour now. Um, I think the only answer is, is Terry, you're just going to have to go back, Pat, because like I have lists and lists of questions that I've been making as we go along. I'm, I'm fascinated. You're making it really easy to understand, very accessible, really practical. Mm. It's been absolutely fantastic. Um, is there anything, any one quick thing that you want to leave people with or anything that we, we should have asked you, but we didn't? Mm. Um, what I might just do is I might run through just a few little quick things people could start doing or adapting just in their daily lives to help. I'll just give a few kind of things. And uh, one of my biggest things where we see massive changes with people and it's so simplistic is gratitude journaling. So just gratitude journaling. When you're in bed at night, list three things that day that you were grateful for. And it's amazing during COVID times because we are isolated. We don't have any outlets. It really makes us sit back and look at the small things that were appreciative. For example, I went for a walk on the beach uh, not so, uh, last weekend and there was a little boy helping his grandmother up the steps. He must have only been about seven or eight. And he just looked at me and he gave me this most beautiful smile. I mean, I can still now 
remember that like it was like it only happened. And I was just like, wow, that really has touched me. And I remember writing that in my diary that night saying, wow, that that alone. And, you know, another day you might not even take notice of that. But what gratitude journaling helps us to do is it helps us to be more get more gratitude. It creates neural pathways in our brain of having more gratitude. And it also accesses our saving system. So if we get into the practice of doing this first thing at night, we're actually accessing our soothing system before going to sleep. And it's a lovely way to go to sleep. So that, that's one thing is around gratitude journaling. And it's really, really simplistic. Um, what I would say to people as well, because I know we're talking about anxiety and because we don't have social contact at the moment, a beautiful thing can to be is to order a weighted blanket. I'm not too sure if you've heard of these. So basically, you can get them in different weights and they're like just a hug. They're a hug and a blanket. And what you can do is you can pop it over yourself. And what it does is it really uh, activates that parasympathetic nervous system. So it really helps you to um, decrease your cortisol. It helps relax. It helps sleep and it helps really calm you as well. So that's another thing that I say to people is really, really important. Um, Certain things like just practical stuff, getting out enough, making sure you're getting enough natural light. Even for people, we're stuck at home all of the time. We're not getting out. Even sit out in the back garden for a while. Even just do practical things like um, feng shui of your house because your uh, organization around yourself means so much. If you have a messy or a cluttery place, it's also going to impact your mind as well. And these are kind of things that people forget about is having this, you know, practical, clean space, natural lighting, getting out. And then all I would say to people is just really trying to engage in mindfulness and trying both the external and internal, because I know some people struggle with the internal one, but they might find doing the external mindfulness a lot, a lot easier. Yeah. And, and mindful movement like can be really great. So like a mindful walk or something like that. I know there's lots of people who find it really difficult to sit still and we're sitting still so much all the time. So almost you might combine kind of getting out, getting natural, like going for a walk. And and as you said, maybe you'll notice the squirrels or you might see places that you, you haven't seen on your, in your locality. Oh. If you're paying attention. Yeah, absolutely. And again, it, it can't important like sleep. Sleep, sleep, sleep. I could do an entire podcast about the importance of sleep, but people are, they're just completely all over the place at the minute with sleep routine and everything like that. And I can't stress the importance of getting a routine and getting good sleep because sleep is probably one of the biggest things that will impact your mental health, your daily mood, your concentration, your activity levels, and you as a person and actually your lifespan. And a lot of people, you know, you know in this modern day side, people are like, going, oh, you know, I only need five hours. I only need six absolutely no you need a minimum of seven hours to nine every single adult in this world does and there is huge research in this area that even an hour lacking an hour in sleep can increase like your chances of heart issues by 27 percent yeah i saw that uh, was it dr matthew walker he what why we sleep that book and i I read it and I used to be one of those, oh, I'll sleep when I die kind of people. But actually, I now sleep competitively. I've got like <laughs> measures and everything. I did not realize how important it is. You're so absolutely right about yeah. that. God, everything, Terry, you're just right about everything. Um, I have absolutely loved this conversation. Thank you so much for your you're so insightful and on all of your knowledge and expertise. Um, we're definitely going to have to do round round two, uh, uh, and we'll come back on. 
Um, thank you so much for your time this morning. Thank you for uh, all sharing all of your practical things. So useful to be able to access this soothing system and make any changes um, to help us to really get grounded during this time. Joseph, any final words from you? I think we've touched on half of the points that I took in my notes at the start. Uh, I think we've touched on more that was even more meaningful and more useful for our clients. And I'm really, really grateful that, that yeah. you're, you're top of my list for my gratitude diary uh, this evening. Um, thank you for sharing this and for bringing your wisdom in such a beautiful way and for making it really, really easy to um, to to uh, assimilate or really easy to 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 grasp a hold of. You know, you took some complicated concepts um, that I struggle with, and you really really made them really really easy to understand. And I'm really really grateful for that. Thank you for bringing us this um, idea around uh, the, the the three systems and the and the drive and the soothe soothe and the threat. That that's really landed really really well with me and my brain. And I'm going to be thinking about that that gearbox and and as I go through the day, how I how I shift. And um, I'm, I'm really grateful for that, Tara. I look forward to uh, having you on again and going into more depth around um, some more subjects. Thank you. Yeah. Round two, we'll have to set that up. Absolutely. Tara, thanks so much. As no. Joseph said, really grateful, really appreciate yeah. it. No, and thank you. That, that's really lovely, lovely feedback. So I'm, I'm absolutely uh, blushing here if you can't see. <laughs> so no, th thank you very much. And I was absolutely, it was a pleasure to be on and I absolutely enjoyed every single minute of it. And I would be absolutely uh, privileged if you have me back on again to discuss this in more depth or other matters or whatever you feel might be, uh, might be therapeutic for people listening. Mm. Well, even we were talking earlier on and you were you're talking about the, the long term impact of COVID and the mental health. And that's something, again, would love to dig into more. So it might be around two, three, four and five at this stage. It's ridiculous. But with that in mind, thank you so much. Um, and we will talk to you again soon. Thanks, Tara. Thanks. Wow, that was an amazing interview. This is Joseph your host from Colour Outside the Lines, joined by my amazing friend. Lisa Hughes, who loved every minute of that. It was fantastic. Guys, we're going to get out of the way because that was a really long conversation. We're definitely having Tara back, though. Again, Absolutely. Stage. We're really, really yeah. grateful for Tara for sharing her time with us and all her wisdom and knowledge. And we hope you guys enjoyed that. See you next time. <laughs>